Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And then John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, as Johnny prayed earlier, please do help me to be clear about how good you are. But more than that, we pray for all of our hearts that you would help us to look to you Even in the weary times, we pray you'd help us to look to you, and please would you help us to find satisfaction in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do keep um, the psalm in front of you, if you can. Um, That'll be a huge help as we go through. Um, The question I want to begin with, uh, which might be a kind of good question for a 9.30 service especially, uh, given we have a number of parents here and it is kind of mid-December, the question is this. How do you handle weariness? Particularly the weariness that comes from tough circumstances. How do you handle the weariness that comes from tough circumstances? It's a good time of year to ask it, I think. Uh, I think a number of us are feeling a bit worn down by life, a bit weary. Uh, Particularly with uh, COVID-19 and all the ways that's negatively impacted life this year year for so many people in so many ways. Lots of us are weary of not having people in our homes, just hospitality, just removed for months. Or we're weary of working remotely, or we're weary of that constant background anxiety as we have concern for the health and safety of those we love. As we wonder, am I going to get locked down before Christmas and not get to see those we love? But actually, it's not just COVID-related circumstances that make us weary. 
Actually, in a fallen world, there are countless sorrows and sufferings that come our way in life. So a number in our church family continue to suffer with long-term health difficulties, uh, including mental health difficulties that are wearying to bear with. Others in our church family are grieving friends and family members who've died this year, some multiple deaths around them. Now those kind of things, of course, aren't just battles that Christians face. If you're listening in this morning um, as, as kind of not a follower of Jesus yet, I hope you find it interesting where we're going to turn in the Bible uh, and where King David, that we've just been listening to in Psalm 63, wants us to turn for help. But actually, for those of us who are believers, we've got all of those normal things of living in a fallen world and the ongoing daily battle with sin, the ongoing sadness of living in a world that rejects its maker, ignores its king, Jesus, the saviour. It's all very well hearing the carols, but most people aren't hearing them or thinking them. So life can feel pretty weary sometimes, and, and with that, our souls can feel pretty dry And the question for Psalm 63 is when the weariness comes, when we're feeling spiritually dry and distant from God, how do we handle it? You can see from the the heading at at the top of Psalm 63 there uh, that, that this psalm was written by David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It's a bit like last week. Last week we had Psalm, 60, uh, Psalm 34, sorry, uh, where David's chosen king was on the run. He was in exile, in f- enemy territory. And here we are, he's in the wilderness this week. So he's not living in the comfort and the joy of being gathered with all of God's people around the throne in Jerusalem. No, he's stuck out in the wilderness, currently exiled, far from home, wandering around a parched wasteland. And verse 1 picks up some of that imagery from the dry environment around him. Just look at it. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So today we're going to see how David, God's king, deals with tough circumstances. What does his prayer life look like? when he's going through the mill, when he's in the wilderness, when he's weary from suffering. And just like in Psalm 34 last week, I think the purpose of this psalm is for us to learn from our king. Look at verse 11 at the end, uh, which generalizes his individual experience to actually all believers. Verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by God shall exult. Do you see that? The king's approach is something we can all share. We can all learn from this. We can join him. So this is going to help us to know how to pray when we're weary, when we're feeling dry and dusty on the inside, parched spiritually. So that's where we're going. Just before we dive in, it's worth saying that it's worth considering our kind of typical coping strategies when life is hard. I mean, what do you turn to? If it's not where David turns, what do you turn for, to? I've been reflecting for myself. I know for me, even though I'm a Christian, even though I'm a minister, I am tempted to turn to all sorts of things before I turn where David does. So sometimes it's distraction. 
just take my mind off the troubles of life. It might be through escapist entertainment, watching sport or something else. Or sometimes it's kind of busying myself with a frantic, frenetic to-do list. Others might find it's, it's kind of shopping. Maybe that, that kind of uh, takes your mind off things. Um, for some, it might just be kind of a paralysis, just sticking the head in the sand and, and kind of shutting down, just kind of giving up a bit on, on life and thinking about stuff. For others, we take our weariness out on others, grumpiness to the family or to the colleagues, perhaps even to God. And sometimes those short-term relief strategies can be all the more tempting if we sense that the difficulties we're going through aren't actually our own creation. It's not really our fault sometimes when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Certainly, that's the situation with David here. Um, There's no mention of his sin in the psalm, and lots of other psalms he is happy to to, um, confess and say, look, I am in the wrong. But here, there's no mention of his sin. In terms of pinning down exactly when this was written, what was the circumstance that this this came out of specifically? We, We can't actually be sure whether this comes from one Samuel, where we left David a couple of weeks ago, on the run from Saul, or from two Samuel, when he's on the run another time on the run from Absalom, his son, who's attempted a coup in Jerusalem and seems to be um, succeeding. Uh, I think there are clues to suggest it's actually that second incident uh, when he's on the run. At, At that point, David and a few loyal companions have had to leave Jerusalem. They've made a swift retreat out of the city, away from the throne. So they end up in the wilderness, particularly Um, uh, uh, low on supplies, weary, under real threat from enemies. In fact, the the word in verse 1, weary, is used in 2 Samuel to describe David's state and those who are with him. The striking thing is you think about that, actually this psalm could come from either of those times in David's life. All those years running from Saul or that extended time on the run from Absalom. Striking that God's king was in the wilderness more than once. That is, suffering wasn't just a one-off blip in his life. It's actually something he had to walk through repeatedly in an extended way. And we've been seeing, all the way through 1 Samuel, we've been seeing what's true of David is actually a picture of what's true of Jesus, God's ultimate king. David is, is, um, his life is shaped in God's providence to, to show us what Jesus' life will be like, the chosen king. And Jesus was a man who repeatedly faced suffering through no fault of his own. And actually, the Bible teaches that followers of Jesus will, find, will sometimes find ourselves in that place of hardship, feeling that we're not home, exiled as one Peter would have it, and not just once. It's not just a blip in life and then you get over it and then everything's rosy. No, sometimes the challenges of life crash upon us like wave upon wave upon wave. So how do we respond? Well, David's answer fundamentally is to thirst and seek for God above all. If, if you've got a service sheet, you can see our outline. We've got three points. They're all quite wordy on the, on, the, on the page. Our first one is God's king thirsts and seeks for God above all. But if your brain's feeling weary and you just want three words to remember this morning, seeking leads to satisfaction and security. Those are the three words. Seeking leads to satisfaction and security. Firstly then, God's king thirsts and seeks for God above all. 
It's really striking this, that, that even in such a hard situation, the thing David is longing for most of all is not primarily a change in the circumstances, a chance to go home, even a physical drink. That's not what he's praying about. He longs for God himself. Listen to verse 1 again. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. It's really striking. In fact, the only mention of the dry and weary land, the wilderness he's in, is as an illustration of how he feels in his longing for God. Did you notice that? He's not actually complaining of of being thirsty and asking for water. It's not like Israel in the desert kind of moaning, where's the water? No, he's using that to describe his longing for God, his, his earnest desire for God's presence. His prayer, even in, in this toughest of circumstances, to know God closer. That really is remarkable. And it's not to say that David didn't care about eating and sleeping and drinking. We mustn't be kind of super spiritual and think kind of asceticism is is the way to go, just deny bodily needs. Remember a few weeks ago, he went out of his way to find some bread, like actual bread, bread you eat, um, from the priests for him and his companions. It's not to deny that. Likewise, it's not to deny the, the role of supportive Christian friends. A number of us would testify that it's this church family that have got us through in lots of ways in God's kindness. Remember with David how Jonathan refreshed him so significantly when he was on the run from Saul. Remember how Abigail a couple of weeks ago stopped him from doing something um, rash and and, um, just angry in in his frustration. So it's not to say that the, the kind of physical things of life and friendship don't help, but this shows his priority. I want you, God. I want to know you. My soul is thirsty. That is a great thing to pray when we're suffering. Lord, show me yourself in and through the sorrows of life, not just the blessings. As David puts it, echoing echoing the kind of words of the covenant in, in, um, in Scripture, God, you are my God. That is even here, even now in the loneliest place, the hardest place, Even now, I thirst for you, for your comfort, for your peace, for your loving presence, for the joy that only you can provide when the going gets tough. If you're not a Christian listening in this morning, that is what you're missing out on, amongst other things. And some of our older brothers and sisters in this church family would testify that this is what they've seen again and again, in their own lives and in the lives of others. This is a prayer that God answers, that that the God of all comfort does draw near to those who are struggling when they turn to him. That's our first big word, seeking. God's king thirsts and seeks for God above all, even when facing deeply wearying circumstances. How does he do that? Well, look in verse 2 at the way he consciously turns his mind away from the wilderness circumstances to another place. That is, he consciously recalls the Lord and his goodness, verse 2. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. David recalls in his mind the sanctuary, that is, the tabernacle, the holy place, 
the tent where God met his people, the kind of symbolic center of God's presence with Israel. Why does he look there? Well, well, partly, I think, because that's the place of meeting between God and his people. And it's the place of reconciled relationship through the sacrifices, the substitutionary sacrifices that happened at the tabernacle. It's the place where God's glory, his holiness, amongst his people is revealed most clearly. It's a kind of great symbol of God's covenant commitment, that he was for his people. And so stuck in the wilderness, feeling like he was miles from God, longing for God's presence, David consciously looks back to that place of meeting, the sanctuary, the revelation of God's power and glory and love for his people. What does that mean for us? Should we be thinking of that tent with animals um, being sacrificed? No, because that was always pointing forwards to the climax of salvation history, the cross of Jesus Christ, the real point of meeting, the great moment of reconciliation between God and humanity, the, the great revelation of God's power and glory and love, his steadfast love. So in other words, when you're feeling weary, yes, think of Christmas, the word became flesh, but also think of Easter. The, one who, the word who came down and made his dwelling among us then died on that cross to bring us to God. And that little bit of, of kind of theology, putting the Bible together, that is practical help in Christian suffering. Do you remember what Romans 5 said? Those of us who, who remember that Bible study in, in our small groups, Romans 5 said we can, we can even rejoice in suffering. We can have confidence in suffering. Why? Because we can be absolutely sure that God is for us. And how can you be absolutely sure that God is for you if, if circumstances in life don't look like that? Well, Romans 5, take a look at the cross. Let me read it. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. David turns his mind to the sanctuary. Paul and the Christians he's writing to says, turn your mind to the cross. God shows his love for us there. So if you are really going through the mill at the moment, I wonder if you realize how much God loves you. And if we're struggling to believe that, how helpful it might be to have a good long look again at the cross, the, the, the rock-solid covenant love shown there. See, if we want to join David in verses 3 and verses 4, this kind of worshipping in the wilderness. Well, the gateway is verse 2. We've got to turn our minds there to get to the point where we'll say, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as I live. That's the bridge from the, the dryness where he starts um, to the worship in the wilderness. And let me just say, lest you're tempted to think perhaps well, that all sounds a bit neat, a bit, a bit kind of glib. You don't really know what I'm going through. You don't know how it feels to be in my shoes. Well, it's worth remembering the pain that David was going through was deep and extended and repeated. 
There's a moment in 2 Samuel, I think probably the most likely moment where this was, was after this, was just before this was written, sorry. There's this moment where um, David and his few followers, they're leaving Jerusalem on the run from Absalom. They're heading out into the wilderness and, and the loyal priests bring the Ark of the Covenant with him and then he stops them and says, no, no, take, take the Ark back. That should be in Jerusalem. And there's, and there's this moment, as his priestly friends disappear, with that, that great symbol, the visible symbol of God's presence heading off into the distance with them. The scripture says this, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. I remember the first time I saw my dad cry. It was a startling moment to me. Just, I hadn't seen it before, and, and suddenly I realized, whoa, the world is a tougher place than I, than I realized if it can make my dad cry. And there, God's mighty chosen king, David and his mighty men, are weeping as they walk. It's a few verses after that that they're described by that word in verse 1, weary. You see, the psalm isn't glib. By the time it makes it into Psalm 63, yeah, it's only a few lines. But in terms of what was going on in David's heart, this is reality. It's not the first time David has suffered unjustly, not the first time he's been kept from his rightful throne, not the first time he's been on the run fearing for his life. I wonder if it's partly the accumulation of suffering that led to his spiritual weariness. I've definitely seen that pastorally. With Saul behind him, he must have felt his days on the run were, were kind of over. It's so striking in the psalm, rather than just turning over that cumulative suffering, how can another thing come my way? How can that be fair? Rather than turning that over, he turns over God's goodness in his mind. He recalls the sanctuary, and it keeps him going. It's the same thing with Jesus. Uh, when, he'd, when he was in the wilderness, he was hungry. He was weary. He'd been repeatedly tempted by Satan, and he reminded himself of the truth. God alone is worthy of worship. He kept looking to him in the hardest of circumstances. That's our first word, seeking. And that, I think, in itself is striking enough. I don't know whether that kind of chimes with your experience, but I think it's striking enough seeing what God's king does first. But actually, as I've prepared this, it's the second thing which has most struck me from verse 5 onwards. Just listen to his ongoing testimony, verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I'll sing for joy. Here's the second thing to notice. Satisfaction. See, it's not just that God's king uh, thirsts for God, seeks God in the wilderness. He actually finds him. He finds satisfaction in him. And not some far-off future thing, like when he gets back to Jerusalem or when circumstances have improved. Right there in the midst of the difficulty. Right there in the wilderness. 
In fact, right there in the middle of the night when he can't sleep. That's what the watches of the night stuff, I think, is getting at. David is up all night, whether it's from concern at the danger they're all in or just his mind turning over and over what's going on with Absalom, wondering about the loyalty of the or the treachery of various friends he's left behind. We don't know what it is, but something is keeping David up. And what we do know what David turns to on his bed when he's unable to sleep. Verse 6, again, it's a conscious remembering of God and meditating on what he knows of God. Verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What about God is he meditating on? Well, verse 7, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I shall sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. David has seen God prove to be his helper and protector so many times. He looks back to the past rescues as plenty of evidence that God will deliver in the end. Just like we can look back to the cross objectively as evidence that God loves us and our own lives of evidence that he's brought us thus far. That's what he's meditating on. So different to, to, to my approach. Sometimes I, I feel like I'm doing a quiet time just to tick the box sometimes in the day. Just get it done, get, get the few minutes out of the way, and then I can get on to business. But for David, this is all the way through his sleepless state. And that's how, and that's when, the satisfaction of his soul comes. Did you see that? Look at the link between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate through the night. This is the point that's really struck me, I think, because I've been challenged whether I ever really do this. Do I ever do the kind of sustained meditating on God's? especially in the night when I'm struggling to sleep. I usually do pray if that's going on. I try and hand things over to God. I ask help to turn my brain off. I, I even might remind myself of a truth about God, his love, his sovereignty, his trustworthiness, that the future's in his hands. But to be honest, I try that for a few minutes max. And then it's on to other things. Maybe, maybe I'll start picking from my um, kind of repertoire of distraction. Maybe it's the news headlines on my phone. Which, just to say, that never leads to more peace and reassurance at the moment. Uh, maybe it's just reading to tire myself out. And again, I'm not saying those things are wrong things, uh, as long as it turns what you're reading, of course, but uh, assuming it's something that's, that's not unedifying. It's not wrong, but it's just not going through as far as what David does here. It's not like the righteous man of Psalm 1, which I think this echoes. Do you remember that person who meditates on God's law day and night? on God's word, filling their mind with God's word, even as the difficulties and sufferings crowd in. And in doing that, David finds real satisfaction. The imagery actually is amazing in verse 5. It doesn't match verse 1. Did you notice that? It's not that he's, he's got a dribble of water to quench his thirst for the next bit. No, it's an absolute feast, verse 5. My soul be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Spiritual dehydration has turned into this kind of rich feast. Suddenly we're in kind of Psalm 23 territory. God, God proving he's a good shepherd to David. He's laying on a feast for him in the presence of his enemies. He's restoring his soul even as he goes through the mill. 
And again, what we see in David, we, we saw in Jesus when he came, God's greater king, the real chosen king. When Jesus in John 4 was physically hungry, thirsty, weary, the disciples encouraged him to eat and he replied that he had food to eat that you don't know about. And when they're puzzled what that could possibly be, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his will. See, for Jesus, as for David, there was rich satisfaction in knowing God, meditating on God. There are those times in the Gospels where Jesus, when he's had a particularly tough time, goes off to pray by himself. And sometimes we're not told, what was he praying? I wonder if Psalm 63 was in there. And that brings David to a sense of real security. Verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Notice who's clinging to who in that verse. It's two-way. I love it. David comes to know, even as he's clinging to God, seeking God as a helper in the wilderness, well, so God's hand, God's mighty right hand, is holding on to him much more strongly. It's just a beautiful image, as is the one in verse 7, this idea of kind of sheltering under the wings of God. And that security can lead David to sing for joy, verse 7, even in the loneliest of times. And it leads him to look forward to the future with confidence. That's the last few verses from 9 onwards. Our third word is security. So we've had seeking to satisfaction to security. Verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the portion of the sword. They shall, sorry, power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by God shall exult from the, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. David ends the psalm confident that his omnipotent God is by his side, even in the wilderness. He knows it's only a matter of time before justice will be done, before those telling lies about him will be held to account. It's only a matter of time before God's king and his people are vindicated. That's the attitude we've seen over the last few weeks. It's why he doesn't have to fight his corner, whether against Saul or Absalom. It's the, it's the same confidence that enabled Jesus our Saviour King, to trust his Father as he went to the cross, knowing he'd be vindicated in the end by the resurrection. So that's the psalm. Seeking to satisfaction and security. So the question is, as we, as we begin to draw to a close, how should we respond? What should we make of all that? said at the start, verse 11, that this is an example for us. We are to join the king in placing our longing in the right place. But here's the question. Is the satisfaction that David finds really something we can expect here and now, this side of glory? I think we can all empathize with sometimes being weary and down. Some of us are struggling with chronic illnesses, pain, fatigue, Uh, mental illness, that can make rejoicing or a a feast of satisfaction sound a long, long, long way from our current experience. And after all, isn't the Christian life suffering now, joy later, or suffering now, satisfaction later? Isn't that how the Bible puts it? No, no, actually, it's not. The Bible does say suffering now, glory later, 
It's true, we're waiting for the world to be put right. We're waiting for ourselves, our bodies to be put right. But the Bible teaches rejoicing in both stages. Think of Romans 5. There's joy available in both periods. Even satisfaction available in both periods, even when circumstances are grim and grievous. It is what's so striking about the setting of the psalm, that this is all written from the wilderness, not the throne room. That's why when 1 Peter talks about us tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, or when he says that Christians rejoice with an inexpressible joy, it's so striking because 1 Peter is a letter about suffering as a Christian, about not being home, about being in exile. And it's so striking when Jesus Christ himself repeatedly offers this thirst-quenching, hunger-satisfying joy to anyone who comes to him. So then why do we so often feel it's lacking? Why is it not our experience more often? To be honest, there are as many factors to answer that question as there are people in this room or watching online. In lots of ways, that's a conversation to have with a Christian friend or with one of the elders, one of the pastoral team. It's not just something you can kind of diagnose from the pulpit, to be honest. But at least this psalm would say, would ask us, are we consciously turning our minds to remember what we know of God? Are we praying like David? Are we looking to God's previously proven goodness? Are we looking at the cross? I know for me that's the challenge. I do share David's longing, both the feeling of dryness often and the longing to know God better, but do I share his determination to meditate? I think sometimes that's the moment at which I part company with David. And some of us, especially in this service, will perhaps feel in our hearts, well, that's all very well, but... Have you any idea how busy my life is? Like, I just, I just can't catch my breath between work and the Zoom calls and keeping the rest of life going and the kids' schedules and trying to get ready for Christmas. I'm just not sure I've got these kind of spare hours to, to sit around thinking about the Bible, praying. It's all right for you. I do know that feeling. In fact, even this weekend, I've been repenting of a week where I felt so busy I, I didn't do much of this. But I wonder as we head into Christmas whether we should be determined to make time for this. I don't know what you're looking forward to at Christmas. Maybe some feasting. Uh, my personal highlight almost of the year in terms of food stuff is the barbecue turkey that, that we attempt every year. When it goes well, it's brilliant. Um, it is always safe. We have a food thermometer if you're worrying. Um, but it, sometimes it's a bit dry. That's one of the things I look forward to, the feast of food that, that comes on that special day. But I wonder if sometimes we, we forget that, the same, that, that that is what Jesus offers in himself, spiritually. I think we can be wary of a kind of spiritual prosperity gospel. We can be wary of that idea that if you just come to Jesus with faith, you will be satisfied. But Jesus did offer bread of life. As we read in our second reading, he did stand up and say, 
pointing to some actual water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sorry, that was, that was to the Samaritan woman. He said, put it like that. And then in, um, in our second reading, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John comments, he said this about the Holy Spirit. Jesus does say there's a measure of soul satisfaction now, on offer now, even in this life, even in the battles and struggles. Later, he says that the eternal life that he's offering, the life we were made for, knowing God, begins now, even amongst the pain. He says to his disciples, I'm, I'm leaving you in a difficult time. The world will hate you, but I'm giving you my joy even as that happens. All of which means we do have the resources at our disposal to find ourselves, even in the hardest of years, even at the strangest of Christmases, as we're conscious of all the things we can't do, can't do normally, we do actually have the resources to find hope, confidence, satisfaction, and a sense of security It's not to say we shouldn't do all the practical things to rest as well, like take a break, eat some food, just ease off for a bit, see friends, socially distance, etc. But actually Jesus says, above all, this Christmas, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your sustaining of King David in the wilderness and his writing of this psalm for us to learn from. And we pray for those of us who do know you, that you'd help us by your spirit to turn to you when we're feeling dry and weary. And we pray for anyone who does not know you yet, who doesn't know that rest in you. We pray that this Christmas you would open their eyes and their hearts to come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.